P. Diddy, Paul Offit, welcome back to the show, brother. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. It always fills my heart with joy throughout the pandemic. You've been a voice of rationality, reasonability, and someone who's willing to change your mind too if like stuff emerges that is different. Let me ask you, let's just start off with what everyone's asking about. The new bivalent Omicron BA4-5 booster dose that has been kind of uh, pushed through and CDC says, yeah, give it to all the people. Um, just let's start with that. Is there data to show that this thing is actually something that Americans need? And if not, what data would you like to see? And would you take it? And so on. There's a million questions, but I'll just toss it over to you because you're you're quite savvy at this. Okay, so right. So in the past few days, the CDC recommended that um, for that everybody over 12 could could receive Pfizer's vaccine, that everybody over 18 could receive uh, Moderna's vaccine, and that everybody should be vaccinated. So, so before I get to the bivalent vaccine, I just want to answer that question. Um, is it true? I mean, does everybody benefit from a booster dose? I think to to understand that, you kind of need to go back to the beginning. So. So in December 2020, our FDA vaccine advisory committee considered the use of Pfizer Moderna's vaccine um, for use at the time in adults. And, and, and when that vaccine launched, um, it was it was, you know, taken up fairly well. And and for the first year, um, the question was, did protection hold up against serious illness? Because that's the goal. That's the only reasonable goal for this vaccine. It's the only attainable goal for this vaccine. You're not going to be able to protect against mild disease for this kind of virus for any length of time. So, so, so don't. So, so did it hold up? I mean, the, the, the virus that the, the vaccine was made to protect against the original strain, the Wuhan one strain, the ancestral strain, which wasn't even the strain that left China. The strain that left China was the so-called D614G strain. But that's what you're, that's what those vaccines do, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, Novavax, all to protect against the Wuhan one strain. So, so did it protect well against these variants? So the very first variant was D614G replaced by the alpha variant because it was more concerned, more contagious, replaced by the delta variant because it was more contagious. And that was the first year. So that was 2021. Those three variants. Did that Wuhan strain protect against severe disease with those three variants? Yes. That is, was a CDC publication by Mark Tenford out of uh, the Clinical Infectious Disease Journal. And whether it was Pfizer's vaccine, whether it was Moderna's vaccine, whether you had one or more comorbidities, or whether you were over 65 years of age, you were still well protected through that first year. Then Omicron hit, and Omicron was different. Omicron surprised people. I, I think people didn't imagine, me included, that a coronavirus could drift, if you will, in a manner that similar to influenza, this large, this big. I mean, there were 15 mutations just in the receptor binding domain, which is the kind of business end of the spike protein molecule that attaches to cell 15. So that's a lot. And, and so even if you'd been naturally infected or vaccinated, you could still get mild disease. Even if you were relatively recently infected or vaccinated, you could still get mild disease. It was an immune evasive strain, but it wasn't immune evasive for protection against severe disease. It wasn't. And that the reason is, is that severe disease is, is the, the immunological component associated with protection against severe disease really is T cells, especially cytotoxic T cells, which are T cells that kill virus infected cells. And those are, are those cells are generally long-lived. And more importantly, they recognize conserved regions. So for all the mutations that Omicron and these Omicron subvariants have, they haven't really mutated away from protection against severe disease because that protection against severe disease isn't mediated by neutralizing antibodies. It's mediated by T cells. So that's good. But nonetheless, the CDC did, did 
critical studies, I think. They weren't perfect, but at least they, they, they answered some questions. Were you better off getting a third dose as compared to a, a second dose? And they found that you were less likely to be hospitalized if you got three doses than two doses. And then to a lesser extent, you were less likely to be hospitalized if you got four doses versus three doses. They weren't perfect studies. But I think the critical question is who was being protected? Who was it that wasn't getting hospitalized because they received because they hadn't received a third dose or they hadn't received the fourth dose? And the answer was not everybody. The people that really benefited were number one, far and away, the elderly, or as Rochelle Walensky, God bless her, has said, the elderly elderly, which I appreciate as I get older. People <laughs> over seventy-five. Um, the second was was people who had chronic lung disease or chronic heart disease or chronic kidney disease or chronic neurological disease, because even a mild illness could cause them to, to, to land in the hospital. And then third were people who were immune compromised. So they benefited from that additional dosing. dosing. So I think it's, it's, it's hard for me to embrace um, uh, immunizing everybody, uh, healthy young people, when we haven't really showed that they clearly benefited from, from booster dosing. So that's, that's number one. Um, it's okay, that's a great re-summary of even that first booster discussion that we had all those months ago. Is the third dose something that's necessary for everyone? And you just answered to the best that, that we understand. And this question of like the elderly, elderly and people that are very high risk, that are very frail, that if they got a cold, they would be tipped over into decompensation. Theoretically, having those higher levels, those boosted levels of neutralizing antibodies that the third dose might've given you in a in a in a time-dependent way that decays over time might be helpful. But your point that the T-cell immunity that's long-lived, that really protects most people against the more severe disease that was that was causing havoc in 2020 and beyond, that the first two doses seems to really instill in a lot, in most people that aren't the elderly, elderly and the people with the uh, chronic disease issues that you just pointed out. Is that a fair summary? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah so now, and one other thing I wanted to re-point re out that you pointed out, as Omicron and these new mutations emerged from the, the original ancestral strains, th it seems like even incubation time is shorter, which would make it even harder to prevent, because we've talked about this on the show before, and maybe it's worth just readdressing real quick. It, 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 if, if the incubation time is very short for an illness, you can replicate really fast, even before things like neutralizing antibodies and other defense mechanisms of the immune system can kick in. So you're not going to prevent an infection, but you will still prevent severe disease. Is that fair? Yeah, and also as, as you get shorter incubation periods and viruses that are progressively more contagious, you need even higher levels of neutralizing antibodies to really prevent a mild illness. So making it all the more difficult. But again, the goal is preventing severe illness. The goal is keeping people out of the hospital, out of the ICU, and out of the morgue. And and again, I remain encouraged that there has not been a virus yet, a, a SARS-CoV-2 virus variant yet, that has resisted protection against severe disease, which does happen with flu. And so that really hasn't happened, at least yet, with this virus. So that's good news. Can I ask one other question? So in the early data from those original trials with Moderna and Pfizer, there was a quite aggressive protection against infection as well, it appeared in those trials. What do you think has, why do you think that was? Why do you think that's changed? Right, when we reviewed data in December 2020 with Pfizer and Moderna, they both had roughly 95% protection, not only against severe disease, but even mild disease. Um, remarkable, that was a remarkable level of protection. No way that was gonna last. I mean, and, and in fact, six months later, several studies showed that while protection against severe disease remained high, 
protection against mild disease dropped to as low as 50%. So why was it so good with those initial trials? And the answer is those were three-month studies. Those participants had just received their second dose. So their neutralizing antibodies were high. And again, I, I think if you could go back in time, which you can do actually if you mix DayQuil with NyQuil. A lot of people don't realize that. You can't do it. <laughs> Throw a little Tylenol PM in the mix, and then you're really traveling through space and time. Yeah, I, I would wish we could go back in time. And when that, that when those data were presented, we could have said this protection against mild disease is not going to last given the nature of this infection and given the way these trials were done. That's not going to last. And, and we did the opposite. I think what happened was six months later, um, when, say, there was an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts, right, thousands of men get together, celebrate the July 4th holiday. Um, there's seven, about 79% or 80% were, were vaccinated, but nonetheless, there's an outbreak. And of the 346 men who got sick, four were hospitalized, a hospitalization of one point rate of 1.2%. That's a win. That's great. Um, but the other 342 men had mild or asymptomatic infection, which the CDC unfortunately labeled as breakthrough illnesses. And that was a mistake. Breakthrough implies failure. That wasn't a failure. That was a moment actually to celebrate the vaccine, to celebrate how amazing it was working here with this outbreak in this basically close space, a, a or clo close together community in Providence. And we didn't do that. We did the opposite of that, the opposite. And so the term breakthrough was born. And I remember just a few days after that was reported, Brett Kavanaugh, right, Supreme Court justice gets an asymptomatic infection. If you watched the way that was carried on national television, you would have thought he was in the intensive care unit. <laughs> So we didn't we didn't uh, communicate that well. So the full communication of that then led to a lot of mistrust and a lot of people feeling like, well, they told us one thing and now they're telling us another thing and now they're telling us another thing. And and this whole idea that we can get vaccinated and actually get on with our lives uh, is a lie. And so I'm just not even going to do it. And I don't trust anybody. And, and it was a huge problem. So then pulling that back now to where we are now with Omicron, we're up to BA four and five. And now there's there. We're, they're on to a different type of booster. Tell us about that and, and where we are with that. So you, could, you could make the argument, you know, that, that right now we're vaccinating with the Wuhan one strain to protect against these Omicron subvariants, BA4, BA5. Does, does that make a bit of sense? Well, see, I would argue that to date, you're still protected against severe disease because those those immunologically distinct regions, i.e. epitopes that are on the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein are shared. And that's been published. Those are published data. You have at least 80% homology between, say, Wuhan 1 and this BA4, BA5 Omicron subvariant in terms of T-cell recognition. And T-cells are critical for protection against severe disease. So I would argue we're still good. But uh -huh. nonetheless... You're going to even if you've gotten the, the you know the Wuhan vaccine, you're still at risk of mild illness because of this this uh, these uh, how far the BA4 BA5 have mutated in terms of protection against neutralizing antibodies. So why not then put that in there? Okay, so so and so on June 28th, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee uh, on which I sit were presented data by Pfizer and Moderna on their bivalent vaccine. Now the bivalent vaccine data they presented weren't on the vaccine that we're currently using. They were on the bivalent vaccine was actually uh, BA1, so the original Omicron. So, so, and they did the studies the right way. Because remember, the, the, the hill that you're trying to climb here is you have to show that the bivalent vaccine is better than the monovalent vaccine at inducing BA4, BA5 specific antibodies. There was a paper by Linda Safe that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine at the end of June. And what she did was she looked at hospital workers who had received two doses of, of the, the Pfizer-Moderna vaccine and found that, that the, the neutralizing antibody levels against BA4, BA5 was suboptimal. But when you got the third dose, it increased. 
So BA4, BA5, neutralizing antibodies increase just with the ancestral strain. So you have to make sure when you do these studies that you show that your bivalent vaccine is significantly better than what in terms of BA4, BA5 specific neutralizing antibodies than it would be just with the ancestral strain alone. So in any case, that's not the studies that were done. They were, you know, these studies were started like in February by Pfizer and Moderna. So it was when, still when BA1 was predominant. And so that's the bivalent vaccine they made, a BA1 containing vaccine, Omicron, the original Omicron. Now, and so they did the study, the way they did the study was the people, participants, there was about 300 in each group, got either three doses of the ancestral strain and then the fourth dose was the ancestral strain or three doses of the ancestral strain and then the fourth dose was the bivalent strain with BA1. And so then they looked at neutralizing antibodies in the bivalent vaccine versus monovalent vaccine. And you had about, it depended on which, which company you were looking at and, and, and which dose with Pfizer's vaccine you were looking at, but about 1.5 to 1.75 fold increased level of neutralizing antibodies if you got the bivalent vaccine. While statistically significant, that is unlikely to be a clinically significant difference. And we know that because if you go back to, to December 2020, um, there was about a twofold antibody difference, neutralizing antibody difference for Moderna versus Pfizer. But nonetheless, that didn't pan out to be a difference in, in, in uh in um, uh, protection against serious illness, there were other problems actually with that those studies. I think one, I think there were there there were um, some assumptions that I think may well be incorrect. The first assumption was that okay, take Moderna's vaccine for example. Normally, if you're an adult and you're boosted with Moderna's vaccine, you get 50 micrograms of mRNA. If you get the bivalent vaccine, you get 25 micrograms of the, the ancestral strain and 25 micrograms of BA1, at least the data we were presented. And the thinking at the time was, well, 25 plus 25 equals 50, which is true from an arithmetic standpoint, <laughs> but I would argue isn't true from a biological standpoint because those are two separate vaccines and, and you're giving them at a child's booster dose level. I mean, the 25 micrograms would not be an adult booster dose. So I don't think you can fairly add them up. The second thing is, and Pfizer actually showed this. What Pfizer did was they, they gave, they did their, their studies several ways. One was they took 30 micrograms, which is sort of the adult dose of, of the ancestral strain plus 30 micrograms of BA1, or they just gave just BA1. And you had a, a much better antibody response with just giving BA1 than giving it as a bivalent vaccine, even at the same dose, which mm -hmm. is interesting because what that tells you is that when you give it combined you're, and you're taken up in the germinal centers of the local lymph nodes, you're competing for those same B cells, whereas when you give them at separate sites, you're not. So I really did, it would be interesting to see if you just gave you know the, the bivalent vaccine instead of you know ancestral and, and BA1 or now BA4, BA5 in the same dose, whether if you separate it and gave it in different arms, it would be different. I suspect it would be. That's not a practical thing to do, but um, that is something that you're up against. Well, so, so, so that's really uh, interesting. So the question is, why even make it bivalent? Why not make it monovalent new strain? Is it because some people haven't gotten the third dose of the original ancestral strain? I mean, what's the what's the reasoning? Good question. I, I think I think you could have reasonably done that. You could have reasonably introduced this as a BA4, BA5 vaccine, knowing that there are still those shared components with regard to T cells. So you're still going to be, you know, uh, boosting T cell responses. So I think that's a perfectly reasonable question. And, and, the and then, oh, go ahead. No, the other thing that was a little concerning is there were really pretty good animal model studies done by Bob Cedar at, at his lab at NIH using non-human primates, rhesus macaques. And, and what he did was he sort of gave those animals two doses of the ancestral strain 
And then um, either the third dose was, again, another dose of the ancestral strain or the, the, the Omicron only, and then challenged the animals with Omicron. Uh, but again, and what he found was no difference. There was no difference in, in, uh, in protection of those animals against, you know, moderate or severe illness. So, uh, that, that, so therefore, the animal model studies also didn't make a case for what we're trying to do here. So, it, okay, so this is interesting because, you know, is there another immunological reason why mixing the two strains might reduce might reduce an overall response? Is there some other competition apart from germinal centers and things like that? Is uh, there, not that I can think of. And is there any effect of the sort of, the um, what do you call it, original antigenic sin where it was already exposed to the original? There's always that. I think yeah. that's always that's always the hill we're trying to climb here. Because I think if you took, say, a a 20 year old who had never been naturally infected, never had been vaccinated, and gave them just say BA4, BA5, you'd see a dramatically greater neutralizing antibody response than 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 these folks, you know, like me, who's been sort of uh, given you know three doses of vaccine, naturally infected. You sort of lock in to that. Uh, that original response, and that's right. So when you when you then go to the germinal center, the the B cells that have already seen sort of the epitopes on Wuhan one that are also contained on say BA four or BA five, those will be expanded much more readily than will the new uh, regions that you're trying to promote, which is why you just don't see that good of an immune response. Interesting, is it? And, and this is we'll talk about flu, but at some point I want to come back and go the yearly flu vaccine. How does that sort of uh, involve this sort of antigenic imprinting? But um, so okay, so back to this. So one thing that you said was that the 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 trials that you saw were the Omicron first OG Omicron strain is what they were testing so in in the human trials, and that you had this one point five fold increase in neutralizing antibodies, which again comparing to the uh, original Moderna versus Pfizer trials, that was kind of the difference in the antibodies between those trials. But there was no clinical difference, so the concern is: is there really a clinical difference, given that the T cells are protecting against severe disease as it is, and that's what we really care about in most people, maybe except for the elderly, elderly, and uh, which we'll talk about. So, what is the bivalent? version we're actually getting now and what's the data saying that that works well there are no data i mean well the bivalent vaccine you're getting now for moderna is 25 micrograms of ancestral strain and 25 micrograms of ba4 ba5 the bivalent vaccine you're getting from pfizer and remember they presented data on 30 and 30 or 60 and 60 but they're launching at 15 and 15. So there aren't even human data, human immunogenicity data, even for BA1. That is completely novel. Um, it would be it'd been nice to at least have immunogenicity data to show that you have, you know, at least twofold, you like twofold, threefold, fourfold greater neutralizing antibodies against BA4, BA5. Uh, we don't have those data. I mean, so do we have mouse data? Is that all we have? What do we have? We have mouse data, yeah. Oh, and well. So, They've shown that they've shown in mice that you get, you know, that if you give this bivalent vaccine, you get a, a dramatically greater increase in neutralizing antibodies against BA4, BA5. But I, again, I just I, I don't think that the mouse data um, are uh, always going to be predictive. I mean, the, the vaccinology people have a saying, which is uh, mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. And that's true. Yeah. And, and humans, I don't know what they do, but it's never good. Um, but at least we should study it in them. Well, so this is interesting. So we're now rolling out. So they, they roll, they're rolling this out, having skipped the FDA advisory committee input. Yeah. Right. Oh, and went right to CDC and CDC said, yeah, 12 and above bivalent this fall as a fourth dose or as a third dose, if you've never been boosted or as a, original dose if you've never gotten it? So one, two, and three oh, no, of this? 
only a boost. So, so you would have had to have received at least two doses of the the current uh, ancestral strain before you would ever get this as a booster dose. It's oh. only it's only being uh, approved as a booster dose. Makes sense because the dosing is different too. So now it, it actually increases complexity for administration, right? Because you've got to store the ancestral vaccine for people who've never been vaccinated or haven't gotten the the two full uh, doses. Yeah. Got it. The, the other thing the FDA did was they um, removed the emergency use authorization for, um, the, for the, the ancestral only booster dose, the monovalent booster dose. So, you, so that's not available anymore. You, you really have to use this bivalent vaccine, which is a little sad because there's a lot of that vaccine out there. Um, I feel like at the very least we should, you know, send it to places that clearly would benefit. And um, I just think it's wasteful. Now, so back to the then the BA four five. So we don't have great immunogen. We don't have immunogenicity data in humans on this particular formulation. We don't have any data saying that it actually improves our outcomes in terms of severe disease. Um, is there safety concern at all with this new formulation, or do you think that is would be overblown? So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I suspect that the um, this bivalent mRNA vaccine containing vaccines will will have a similar safety profile to the current uh, ancestral only vaccine. That would be my guess. Um, I think that's a fair guess. I think that's biologically reasonable. But again, you have to be open minded. And I'm sure that um, this the CDC will through places like the vaccine safety data link and the vaccine adverse events reporting system follow this up and follow it up well. And I suspect that by October, we will have sort of uh, immu human immune response data for the, the bivalent vaccine. I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that will be true. And then we'll, we'll see what those kind of data show. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be surprising. Maybe we'll find that for BA4, BA5, um, given to people who've already received, you know, at least uh, two doses and, and possibly three or four, that it's dramatically greater than what we saw with BA1. That would be great, but we'll see. So then when the rubber hits the road and P you know, CDC is saying, take this, would you right now, you've, I imagine, have had two doses and an old school booster. Would you uh, sign up to get this BA4-5 with what we know right now at this time? Well, so, so I had three doses plus a natural infection in May. So I think I have high levels of, of uh, memory B and T cells. I don't think that I will benefit from getting the booster dose because I think that, that, that the benefit, what the benefit would be was I think it would give me sort of a, a few more months of protection against mild disease for, you know, for, say for the winter months, but I, um, I'm, I guess I'm willing to suffer mild disease. I did once already. And if anything, it just gives me broader hybrid immunity. In fact, I feel better actually that I had a natural infection and even better that I survived it, which is by definition true as so someone your show, but. Um, so that's, that's, that's heresy, Paul. You can't talk about natural infection being a good thing at all, uh, or you're going to be excommunicated from the Covidian church. But, um, it, I mean, it's interesting because we don't, for example, we don't, um, revaccinate, uh, patients who've had chicken pox with varicella typically, do we? It's a different scenario. Oh, or, or people, but yeah, but see, it's, it's, um, if you, chicken pox is a relatively long incubation period disease, as is measles, as is mumps, as is rubella, so German measles. So when you get infected with those um, viruses, you, you generally have memory B and T cells that are lifelong, and that's enough for you to be protected even against mild disease because you're, you know, there's plenty of time for activation and differentiation of those memory B cells or memory T cells, even to protect you against mild disease. That's why you can eliminate long incubation period diseases 
from the face of the earth. I mean, smallpox is a long incubation period disease. Um, Rinderpress pest, which is a sort of like cow measles, has been eliminated from the face of the earth because it's a long incubation period disease. And, I, you know, we eliminated measles from this country by 2000. It came back because a critical percentage of parents chose not to vaccinate their children. We eliminated rubella from this country in 2005. It hasn't come back. So you can do that. You're not going to do that with this virus. This virus will continue to circulate and cause mild disease. Even if 100% of the world were vaccinated, and even if it never mutated coming out of China, it would still circulate and cause, um, you know, cause mild illness and, and some severe illness. Yeah, and it has animal reservoirs and, you know, on and on and on and on, all the reasons you can't eradicate that COVID zero is a fantasy. Um, but so, okay, so then this becomes a question because the government is already talking about, you know, like, for example, uh, Bob Califf said, hey, you know, if you get this thing, you might be more likely to attend big winter gatherings if you get it by Halloween. I mean, do you think that's a reasonable statement or is that wishful thinking? No, that, that's not fair. I mean, it, it, it's, again, the, the you can't set yourself up a goal of preventing transmission or transmitting mild, preventing mild disease for a short incubation period disease. It's just not reasonable. Um, yeah. I think the if, if fantasies could come true, if I could get like the bivalent vaccine of my choosing, the bivalent vaccine I would like to get, or just monovalent vaccine, is one that contains mRNA against the uh, SARS-CoV-2 nuclear protein, because that that's a has a, is is often richly expressed on infected cells, is definitely recognized by cytotoxic T cells, and I think that would really boost my cytotoxic T memory um, uh, repertoire and, and 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 probably give me longer lived protection against serious disease. So that's the bivalent vaccine I want. Uh, by the way, there, there are studies now that recently one that was published in Syrian hamsters. Good news for the Syrian hamsters. And if, if we can get this into human trials, it would be good news for us. Um, you know, that, that it really it does provide that sort of broad immunity that, that we're looking for. So the nuclear uh, uh, antigen, that's interesting. I would imagine you'd need new safety data trials in humans on that, though, because there might be some something. Oh. Yeah. You just never know you're using a different epitope. So, okay, so this idea then of extrapolating to making this a yearly flu shot type thing, it might be worth kind of differentiating. How, why, why would we need to do that for whom? In other words, who, who even now would you say should get this BA4-5 uh, bivalent vaccine? Is it the elderly, elderly, and the people with chronic disease for whom even a mild infection, which we won't fully prevent, but we might like lower the chances with the high levels of neutralizing antibodies out the gate, are those the only people who should get it, do you think? Uh, and then should we really be talking about doing this annually with the level of data we have currently? You know, I, I think um, it's, it's certainly if we're trying to have an impact on preventing hospitalization and ICU admissions and deaths, I, I think it makes sense to focus on those groups, the groups most likely to be hospitalized, the groups we've shown are most likely to be hospitalized if, we, if they don't get, say, a third dose or a fourth dose. I think that's perfectly fair. I also think pregnant women, by the way, in their third trimester will benefit from a dose of vaccine. And it doesn't even have to be, I mean, if you said to me, you know, would you prefer, you know, this sort of bivalent vaccine with BA4, BA5, or just getting the monovalent vaccine, you know, the dose that is typically a booster dose, um, I don't really distinguish those two. You can make a case for the fact that the monovalent vaccine was better for the reasons we talked about. It is an adult booster dose. Um, you're not competing at the, the level of the germinal center with two lower dose vaccines. But um, but in any case, I, I think in some ways it's a, it's a style question. I, I mean, if a mother of a 12 year old came into my office and said, look, I, I want to get this vaccine. Uh, fine. I, I think it's kind of low risk, low benefit. And at some level it has it's it's a it's a personality issue. I mean, 
you know, some people would argue, you know, if there's any risk and, and the benefits are small, forget it. And others would argue, well, if the risks are low, then if there's any benefit, I'll get it. So I wouldn't discourage the, the, the woman from getting it, but I, I would want to tell her about, uh, about, you know, the, you know, potential side effects. I, I think on your show, uh, Dr. Prasad talked about that Thai study uh, that was done in 13 to 18 year olds in Thailand who had gotten sort of two doses of Pfizer's vaccine. You saw sort of a transient elevation in, in heart muscle enzymes like troponin, creatine kinase. Um, it was short-lived, it was self-resolving, um, but, you know, you are making an immune response to your own heart for a brief period of time. And, and you know, we'll find whether or not there's a spectrum of illness associated with it. Yeah, and that's really interesting. And, and it just gets to the question of if the benefit is very small, then any risk, even if small, is magnified relatively speaking and making that risk decision becomes something that you talk with your doctor. Like you said, you're not necessarily discouraging them, but you're saying, here's what what we know about this and and the ins and outs of it, which again, but by, by the way, I still can't, I'm still, I'm ready to cancel you, Paul, because you said pregnant women, which is a no-no, it's pregnant people, okay? Uh, next, <laughs> I actually got yelled at for saying pregnant women, apparently. I didn't. Yeah, the CDC's party line now is pregnant people. We won't get into that because we'll both get canceled. But I'll say this, um, the, <laughs> the in kids vaccine, one quick thing I wanna ask, do you think Omicron, there seems to be quite a bit less MISC now. Is that because Omicron is different or because more people have overall immunity or what do you think is going on? See, it's hard to know, right? Because now, I mean, when, when, when say, D614G or Alpha or Delta came into the United States, we were a blank slate. And so um, now we're not. We probably have 95% population immunity. So it's hard to know whether there's ameliorating effects of previous immunity with this strain. I mean, there were, there were some data out of South Africa that, where they believe that Omicron was like, less likely to cause MISC. We're certainly seeing less MISC. Um, at our hospital, we're seeing much less MISC than when this all started. But I suspect it has more to do with population immunity than the, the virus. And then let me ask another question, because you know, if you go on Twitter and you see people who are either in public health or around this space, tweeting things like, this new BA4-5 bivalent vaccine will, if you don't wanna get long COVID, you should get this vaccine or, you know, cause any risk of infection is too much because of the risk of long COVID or the risk, you know, MISC now they're not talking about cause we're seeing much less of it in children, but what are your, what's your thinking around this? Is there data that something like this would actually prevent long COVID? Yeah, so there are some data. There was actually just a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association out of Italy. And what uh, they looked at were, were people who had received either no vaccine or one dose or two dose or three doses. And what they found was that for unvaccinated people, at least in Italy, the, the way they define long COVID, there was a 42% incidence of long COVID in people who got COVID but were unvaccinated. For people who had one dose of vaccine, that incidence of 42% dropped to 30%. For people who had two doses of vaccine, that 30% uh, level dropped to 17%. So good. But for the third dose, it went from 17% to 16%. There was really no difference then between the second and third dose, which then makes the case then for boosters as a way of, if it's going to be your third dose or your fourth dose, it doesn't, uh, it's at least those, those Italian data didn't support the notion that that's going to dramatically lessen the risk of long COVID. That's fascinating. So the original series Yes, you might reduce risk and whether it's due to less infection or whether it's due to less severe disease, we don't know because we don't understand long COVID. But the idea that an extra booster now is gonna somehow put a big dent in long COVID is not supported by data that we have available. Is that fair? That's yeah. Fair. 
Yeah, so I don't think that's a good rationale for, say, an 18-year-old to go run out and get the BA.4.5 bivalent vaccine. And you've already kind of talked about why, even though it makes intuitive sense to update for Omicron, um, there are the, re- the reasons why that may be less effective than we think have already been established by what you've talked about and we've talked about on previous shows. So then what's the comparison to influenza? Because now a lot of people are talking about going and getting the BA.4.5 uh, vaccine along with the flu shot and the same visit, et cetera. Why is it, you know, we annually vaccinate for flu, flu, you know, what's flu's incubation period? What's the deal with severe disease protection and waning? And how can we compare these two things since comparing flu to COVID is already another way to get us canceled? Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode. It's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also want to hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at ZDogMD.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you want to be a part of this community and support the show, join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we gonna transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. (laughs) So here's what I would say. Um, so a couple of years ago, when the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee picked flu strains, we missed on H3N2. There was a mismatch. And as a consequence, H3N2 was you know spread throughout this country pretty much unchecked because we didn't have a vaccine to prevent it. If flu was like coronavirus, um, then, then, then it should have been true that there, there are, say, T helper cell epitopes rec- that are present on other H3N2 strains that would have protected it against severe disease, but it didn't. I think with flu, it's much more strain specific. And so you need those, those new strains every year, those strains that are circulating in Australia or South America before they come into the United States. Uh, that, that matters. Um, I still think it's, it's amazing since we've had flu vaccines since the 1940s. There's still much not to know, much that we don't know about sort of human T-cell epitopes, much that we don't know about sort of the difference between protection against mild disease and protection against severe disease, where we actually have a lot of data on that with, with coronaviruses that we don't have as, as clearly defined with, uh, with flu virus, whether these two, two, two viruses are uh, similar enough that one could say that you could reasonably give a yearly flu vaccine, and, uh, yearly uh, coronavirus vaccine in the same manner that we give a yearly flu vaccine. There's much that's, that's not known. But I, I do think that um, um, with coronavirus to date, it does look like if you've been naturally infected or vaccinated, you appear to be protected against severe disease. And, and then the critical question is, and, and CDC needs to answer this question along with academic immunologists. If you're, say, a healthy young person who's gotten two doses of vaccine, three doses of vaccine, or four doses of vaccine, 
How long does that protection against severe disease last? So the epidemiologist can answer that question and should, and the immunologist can also at the same time look at the frequencies of memory B and T cells one year later, two years later, three years later. They've already looked one year later, and now you're starting to get sort of one and a half year later. But let's let's look over time and see if somebody like me who's had three doses of vaccine, I've had a natural infection, do I ever need another dose of vaccine again? I think you know those those questions those are answerable questions, and I think we deserve those answers. Okay, so it's very important. I'm going to. I'm going to go back to everything you just said and try to summarize it because I think this is key. When you're comparing, it's funny, you're not allowed to compare coronavirus to influenza in the early days because that was taboo. But now, actually, the officials are saying, (laughs) just like flu, we're going to need an annual coronavirus vaccine and we can give it with the flu vaccine. But the differences, as you're saying, are that influenza it is so strain specific as to whether it causes severe disease. So a different strain will cause severe disease, even if you have antibodies to the other strain. Whereas with coronavirus, we have yet to see that. In fact, we might be seeing the opposite and more data is needed for both, obviously, and that it may be actually time to even look back at flu and go, okay, so what is it in our approach that actually works and what can be modified and so on? But but influenza is quite different and the severe disease in influenza actually affects uh, people of all ages, typically, although typically they're very young and old and immunocompromised worse. Is, is that a fair summary of what you're saying? Yes. I mean, I, I think the other thing is that because we talk about like pan sarbecovirus vaccines, let, let's do what makes sense. Let's find those shared um, epitopes, so those conserved regions among these different viruses, you know, SARS-CoV-1, the four strains of circulating human coronaviruses, strains that are currently circulating in bats that have pandemic potential. I mean, let's do that. Let's make a pan-sarbecovirus vaccine. And I think, I guess I, my enthusiasm is tempered somewhat because I trained in Walter Gerhardt's laboratory uh, in, in the 1980s at the Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, who was a flu researcher, it was actually where John Udell also uh, trained. And and uh, he said something to me. He was working at the time 40 years ago on a universal flu vaccine. And he said, you know, if you want a research career that lasts the rest of your life, study influenza. And I think that's true. These are much, much harder things to do than 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 you would imagine. And same thing with HIV. I mean, when you're infected with HIV, you make an antibody response that neutralizes that strain. But the virus continues to mutate during the same infection. It mutates and mutates and mutates. So those original antibodies don't work anymore. All right. So doesn't it make sense then you look at conserved regions. On, on, on one of the proteins and, and make a vaccine out of that, which is what Merck did essentially, and it didn't work. It's, it's much easier to say this than, than to do it. Mm, so, so interesting. And, and with influenza, the other thing that people wonder about is, well, if I get this dose too early, people say that the immunity wanes. And is that, again, is that a coronavirus type thing where the influenza um, uh, incubation period is short and so you can still get infected and you need high levels of in- neutralizing antibodies to ward it off? Or is there something else going on? And is that even true? Does does in, uh, in, uh, influenza shot immunity wane over the months? Uh, what's your understanding? It does. I mean, mm. I have people who are vaccine experts who choose to get two doses of influenza <laughs> vaccine during the winter season. <laughs> So yes, I think is the answer. So so you could either get two, and they're vaccine experts that do that, or you can get one and ti- try to time the market, so to speak, and say, okay, we're not seeing a lot of influenza circulating. I'll get it in October, say, instead of, you know, August when CVS is marketing it, you know, pushing it really hard, and and it's like, well, by the time you know if there's a second phase of influenza, do 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 we have a, we have a, of course no sense what's going to happen with influenza this winter. 
No, you know, we always make our best uh, guess. We we pick strains in March because it's a six-month production cycle. The, the, the vaccines roll out in September. And, we, you know, we're usually pretty good at getting it right. And you should come to those meetings, actually. You would be – they're open to the public. Um, uh, you, you can come as my guest, although I don't, you don't need to, I don't need to have you as a guest. You can definitely come. Yes. Come to the FDA, and, and you'll be really impressed. I mean, you get presentations – from the Department of Defense, from the CDC, from the World Health Organization, from this, you know, and, and you get a, you, you have this map of the world with all these different strains and, and substrains and clades that are circulating. And you wonder how we ever prevent this disease at all in anybody, given how much this virus mutates. And this is not coronavirus. I mean, coronavirus is not that. Um, and so um, we'll see. I, I do think the critical question the CDC has to answer in concert with immunologists is how long are you protected against severe disease if you've gotten three doses, if you've gotten four doses, um, knowing that to date there has not been a virus yet that, that has a variant yet that has, 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 is so mutated that it escapes protection against serious disease. Because when that happens, then we have to you know, take a step back and vaccinate everybody. Then it's a little more like flu, like a flu shifted strain. I mean, like in 2009, when the H1N1 uh, swine flu appeared, essentially no one had immunity to that virus. And that may happen with this virus too. We'll see. I doubt it, but we'll see. Really interesting. It's the naivete of the human immune system to a particular virus. And um, so, okay, so speaking of this, now, all this talk about vaccines and everything that's sort of divided us during pandemic and all the kind of communication from public health officials and from scientists and then from people that have decided that they're going to snort ivermectin or whatever it is. Uh, we're in a situation now where I think that trust is, uh, hey, don't knock it till you've tried it, Paul. Snorting ivermectin. I mean, in the 80s, it was cocaine. Nowadays, it's, it's you know, anti-parasitics. Uh, I am worm free. I'll just say that. Um, I've not snorted ivermectin or taken it. Um, the, the ancillary effect is even our regular childhood vaccines now are suffering. Uptake is suffering, partially because of shutdowns, partially because people are afraid to go to the doctor. But partially, I think there's a growing distrust of expertise. And what you just pointed out, which, you, hey, you come to the FDA meeting and you look at this data as it's presented from around the world and you see you need experts to be able to parse through something that complex. And the fact that we're able to do it at all is a testament to the fact that teams of people who study for years are able to come together and they have their own biases, but science is supposed to try to clean up and see through bias. Um, now we're seeing resistance to even childhood vaccines. And what's going on with polio? The news coming out about seeing vac vaccine-derived polio strains showing up in New York and uh, an actual paralytic case showing up in a younger person in their 20s, I believe. What's going on there and, and how do you think about this? Right. So again, sort of starting from the beginning. So, so um, Jonas Salk made a polio vaccine by taking polio virus, growing it up in culture, purifying it and killing it with a chemical, a whole killed viral vaccine. We use that vaccine in this country from the mid 1950s till the early 1960s. That was then replaced by a vaccine made by Albert Sabin, which was made by taking polio virus, weakening it by uh, passing it in, in, uh, in monkey kidney cells and monkey testicular cells and a variety of other cell types so that now you had a live virus, but a live weakened virus. Um, and that's the vaccine that we used from the early 1960s up until the year 2000. Now, we eliminated polio from this country in the 1970s. Um, but throughout the 1980s and throughout the 1990s, every year in this country, eight to 10 children would get polio from the polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. Because that virus, like this virus, like SARS-CoV-2, it's a single-stranded RNA virus. It's about 7,500 base pairs in lengths. But it's possible for that virus, because it's really not attenuated or weakened for growth in the, in the, um, in the uh, intestines, 
it's attenuated for growth in the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So when you get the oral polio vaccine, that virus can reproduce itself for weeks and months. And if it happens to be that that um, because single stranded RNA viruses uh, replication is not terribly faithful, you have a mutation or mutations that essentially cause the virus to be essentially revert to neurovirulent type or wild type. Then you get polio from the polio vaccine. That was rare. It occurred in about one per 2.4 million doses, but it was real. And once you were then once that happened, once you were shedding essentially a vaccine virus that had reverted to neurovirulent type, it was clinically indistinguishable from the polio caused by, you know, by wild type virus, natural polio virus. Um, and so, so, so countries that use the oral polio vaccine, and we haven't used the oral polio vaccine here for more than 20 years, when, you know, when they use that vaccine, that's the Faustian bargain that they're making, which is that you know that you're going to be, you have a, a, a cheap and easy way to prevent polio. And also, I think the attraction of the oral polio vaccine was something called contact immunity, not herd immunity, meaning if you vaccinate somebody in the home, that virus can spread throughout the home and essentially immunize other people, which, you know, especially low resource countries, you know, was was attractive. And it was attractive here. Actually, when you look at Scandinavian countries, never used the oral polio vaccine, eliminated polio from their country. So we could have done that. We could have stayed with the inactivated vaccine and never asked those children, those eight to 10 children every year to get polio from the polio vaccine. I, I was actually um, on the advisory committee for immunization practices from like 1996 to 2001. And I was made head of the polio working group. And it was my mission to get us away from the oral polio vaccine because I just thought it was unconscionable to, to, to give a vaccine that you knew caused eight to 10 children to get polio every year, knowing you had a safer way of doing this. And, and it, to, to make that to make that happen, to make it easier to happen, um, I brought a man named John Salamone onto the committee. I mean, he was a this wonderful man whose son had suffered polio from the oral polio vaccine. And he was he was actually, I think, head of the Italian-American Foundation. So he was used to dealing with Congress all the time. He, would, to me, was a true vaccine safety activist. I know the anti-vaccine people often label themselves anti-vaccine safety activists, but often what they advocate for has nothing to do with vaccine safety. He was right. He wanted the oral polio vaccine to have a black box warning on it. His son was paralyzed by a vaccine because he had no idea that the oral polio vaccine could do that. And he was really angry. His son actually uh, died uh, a few years ago. So I brought him onto the committee. And um, and he was a powerful voice that helped move us away then from the oral polio vaccine to the inactivated vaccine, which we've had now for the last you know 20 plus years. If, if you go to Scandinavian countries and you look in wastewater, presumably you won't find any polio virus because the inactivated vaccine shouldn't be detected in wastewater. But, but in New York City, what happened was there was um, a man, I think a 27-year-old man in Rockland County, um, who was part of an ultra-Orthodox community that was under-vaccinated, who got polio from the polio vaccine caused by this type 2 revertant virus. Now, now what, what, what percentage of people who are infected with this virus develop paralysis, a very small percentage. I mean, some estimate as, as few as one in 2,000 people who are infected with this virus actually are paralyzed by it. This is true of the, the natural virus. The natural virus, I mean, polio was common, but not everybody who got polio, which was really mostly a mild summer gastroenteritis, got paralyzed by it. And that's true also for these revertant strains. So when you see a case of paralysis, assume it is a type of a much, tip of a much bigger iceberg. Also assume that these type 2 revertant viruses have been circulating 
in, in the United States for a while. I think if you looked in Las Vegas or San Francisco at the well wastewater, you would also find polio virus there because I think those those strains always circulate. The reason I think this this happened, likely reason it happened in that community, it was in an undervaccinated community. And, and that's the lesson. The lesson is maintain high levels of vaccine because these kinds of viruses are out there. And we're not going to ever eliminate polio from this world until we stop using the oral polio vaccine. Wow. Oh, my gosh, Paul. <laughs> that is an amazing story. Um, so what is the disadvantage of the in inactivated, apart from the, sh the inability to shed and create close contact immunization? What's the downside of inactivated? It's an injection instead of oral? Yeah, it's, it's more expensive. It requires paramedical personnel to give it. That's it. It is a highly effective vaccine that has the capacity to eliminate polio from this world. Wow. So if we had unlimited resources, everyone would get that and we'd eliminate polio, but we have limited resources. So some get the oral polio vaccine, which can mutate and revert in rare instances and then be shed and infect people who would normally, even one in 2000 or 2000 of them would do fine, even normally unvaccinated, but that one could get paralyzed. Now vaccinated, you drop that to negligible. Yeah, you know, it, it, people... Um, the term infantile paralysis, which was an old term that we used to describe polio, misrepresents what that, that disease was. I mean, the, the, the polio was incredibly common. I, what, what happened was, um, is in the, say, 1920s, 30s, polio wasn't as common as it is now. It became a, 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 a common as a result of increased sanitation and hygiene. Because what happened there was, normally what would happen is because polio was, everybody got polio. Um, usually, you know, an asymptomatic infection. And so mothers, therefore, had antibodies, polio antibodies that they would passively transfer to their, their newborn. And, and in that first year or two of life, that's when the child would be exposed because sanitation and hygiene wasn't very good. Once we improve sanitation and hygiene and, and, and people weren't exposed then in that first year of life, then it became a disease of the five to nine year old. I mean, that, that's why. And so the term infantile paralysis was never right. It was, it was really a disease of the five to nine year old because of sanitation and hygiene. That's that, what happened. That is fascinating. You know, because it's funny because anti-vaccine activists will often say, oh, the reason polio got better was not the vaccine. It's because of improved sanitation and hygiene. And what you're saying is, no, actually, when we were dirtier, uh, everyone would get infected and the mom would pass those antibodies and the kid would then have at least some passive protection when they were very young. And that is absolutely fascinating. So this, this is an interesting story that, again, gets back to why it's important to actually use safe and effective vaccines in childhood to prevent these diseases. And like you said, when you have a safer op uh, opportunity than, an, than uh, one that's less, like the oral polio vaccine, uh, you wanna take that and scale up to, to do that. So then that brings us to monkeypox, because <laughs> everyone's talking about monkeypox. And they were saying, oh, it's, if it's not one pandemic, it's another. The government just wants to control us by creating pandemics. Um, my, I, I did a video on monkeypox recently, and, and um, I'm just curious. So. What's interesting, the questions for you are, are, and this affects children as well, so it's a kind of broad, it's in the, in the um, sort of pox virus family. T teach us a little about monkeypox and let's talk about vaccine options because I think it's interesting. Right, so, so um, many different species have their own uh, infections with so-called orthopox viruses, pox viruses. So there's cowpox, monkeypox, rabbitpox, horsepox, um, human smallpox. And, and the, the um, good news is they're antigenically similar. 
So, so, and that was the first vaccine, right? Edward Jenner made the observation, or actually it was made before him, that, that milkmaids had fair skin. That, that, that if you looked in Southern England, every two to three years where Edward Jenner worked, the virus would sweep through the Southern English countryside and cause, you know, the devastation that comes with smallpox, which has a mortality rate of like 30%. You know, and, and, and for those who survive, many are left blind. It is a terrible infection. Um, but milk, milkmaids, and, 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 and when you're infected and survive, you have these sort of residual pockmarks because it's a very deep-seated blister. Um, but milkmaids didn't seem to get that, hence the term milkmaids have fair skin, because what, what he observed, and it was actually observed by a guy named Benjamin Jesty a couple uh, uh, decades before him, um, but, but Jesse didn't do the experiment, and, and Jenner did, and so Jenner gets credit. But the, the, what, what Jenner realized then was, well, maybe there's an association between these, these blisters that these milkmaids are getting on their, their hands and wrists, the, you know, what we now think of as, uh, know as cowpox, and the fact that they don't get human smallpox. And so he then just took the blisters from a woman who was in his employ, a milkmaid named Sarah Nelms, and then inoculated people, including his son. And then what he did was he, he variolated them, because, you know, really back from in the early 1700s, um, Benjamin Franklin regretted the fact that he didn't give his son uh, this essentially a smallpox vaccine, which was you would give them smallpox. You would, you would sort of take these, these dried blisters and you would make them into a crust and then you would either inject them or inhale them. And that was variolation. But when you got injected with that, it caused a really intense blister. So what he did was he inoculated his son with what, you know, what we think now is cowpox. And then, then he variolated him, but didn't see that intense reaction. So he said, okay, I think there is protection here. It's interesting if you look back, I'm not sure it actually ever was cowpox. There was recently a study in New England Journal of Medicine suggesting that might have been horsepox. Um, that that he that uh, that we were using as vaccinia virus to protect against uh, human smallpox, which is interesting because that's where the word vaccine comes from. Uh, the word vaccine comes from you know v a c c a Latin. There's no hard v in Latin, so waka means cow. Wakanai is the genitive form of the cow, and that's where the word vaccine comes from. Is because cow. But maybe we're gonna have to go back and change that. I'll make it like equines. <laughs> right. I just had a nerdgasm. Listening to that story, that was amazing. Oh man! So, all right. So, <laughs> so we kind of have the history of the smallpox. We have history of vaccines. We have interesting immunology in there. So now, bring us up to monkeypox, which is in that family. And people will say, "Well, if you've had the original smallpox vaccine," which, by the way, Paul, I miss. I was born in 1973, so I missed the American. Uh, tail end of smallpox vaccination. We'd eradicated it by, I think, 1970, I believe. But my mom took me to India when I was six months old, and I stayed there for six months with the family. And they were like, you know, we have all the vaccines. And I got the smallpox vaccine, and I still have a big-ass scar from it, um, from that, I guess, variolation reaction. I, I don't know if it's the same thing. But... Um, you know, that was, uh, that was vaccination. That wasn't variolation. That's variolation. right. That was vaccinated. You got vaccinated. Right. Yeah, because I didn't get the crust and inhale it or in, or inject it. And um, so, am I? Uh, the cross protection you said is is pretty good. Do you think I would still be protected against monkeypox having had that? Yeah, remember the the well. I think the answer is yes for the most part. I mean, so the number that you hear people talk about is that you know the protection again is is about eighty five percent protection against monkeypox. But I think the answer to the question, which you really care about, is is because yeah, monkeypox 
like all pox viruses can be fatal. Um, are you protected against, you know, potentially fatal or serious disease, right. like, you know, where you get encephalitis or you get a sepsis-like syndrome or pneumonia? And I think the answer is yes, mm. for the same reason. I mean, remember, the, the, the current monkeypox vaccines are still vaccinia. I mean, they're still like the original smallpox vaccine. Um, the, the two that are available, and one we don't use, one is called ACAM2000, which is, is essentially just kind of a purified version of that vaccinia virus vaccine. And then the other is the Stenios vaccine, which basically you just take this, uh, the anchorous strain of what was the vaccinia virus vaccine that we use and then modified. So it's a modified vaccinia anchor strain. Um, and it's modified by basically passing it like 500 times in chick embryo fibroblast cells. So it really can't reproduce itself anymore. So it's like live, it's, it's, it's live virus, but it really can't reproduce itself. Uh, similar in a sense to the Johnson & Johnson uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. It's a live virus, but it can't reproduce. And so, so, um, and and interestingly, the the when we decided to give it, um, you know, to sort of because we didn't have enough vaccine to give it, say, via the intradermal route, you know, um, I, I like that idea I, because remember that when the vaccine you got when you were in India, or I got because I was born well before 1972 when we stopped using smallpox. That was an intradermal vaccine. The scarification technique is an intradermal vaccine, and your the area in your skin is a rich source of so-called antigen-presenting cells like dendritic cells. So that's that's a great way to give a vaccine. I mean, we don't we still lack a, a critical amount of data, but I, there's every reason to believe that it would be effective. So preventing some. So, so we don't, we don't, okay, so a couple of questions. Why do we do intramuscular at all then? No, you can argue, you can argue that, that we, we should use more dendro, that uh, we could use more uh, intradermal vaccines. It's not as easy to give mm. uh, intradermal vaccines as compared to subcutaneous intramuscular vaccines, but we could certainly use it more. And, and, and we, there's always a talk about these so-called micro needles, you know, where you have like a hundred little needles and as a patch and you put that patch on, that's essentially an intradermal vaccine. Got it. Got it. And, and so we don't have a fully inactivated, killed uh, uh, smallpox type vaccine? Pox? Is it just yeah, because you need... All, for all intents and purposes, the virus doesn't replicate. The Genios vaccine doesn't replicate. So it, that's why it's much safer. The original vaccine, the you know, the smallpox vaccine had, uh, euphemistically say, a difficult safety profile. I mean, it could cause pericarditis, myocarditis. You know, there are people who would occasionally die from the smallpox vaccine. And when we launched the smallpox vaccine in this country, which we did um, back in early 2000s, right before we invaded Iraq, there was an interest in by the Bush administration of initially vaccinating everybody and then sort of talked down to just vaccinating first line responders. I, I never thought that was a good idea. I actually voted no. I seem mm -hmm. to be always the only no vote on these things, but I, I voted no when that came up. For many reasons, I didn't think we needed to launch that program. I thought we should get ready. I mean, make sure people knew how to give the vaccine. Was if there was just one case somewhere in the world, you could basically make a case for starting. But I didn't think we needed to start doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And and so we were seeing some myocarditis in uh, in military personnel, correct? Young people. That's, that's right. Yeah. And and now one one thing I was reading about the old smallpox vaccine was uh, occasionally you would get uh, was it a disseminated smallpox case or a, a replication? Yeah, especially in people who had like, you know, psoriasis or, you know, sort of skin disorders where, you know, it allowed for more of that. I thought, I mean, I was a fellow. I remember seeing a case of uh, disseminated smallpox um, or, you know, disseminated vaccinia in someone who was in, in a physician who had decided to give the smallpox vaccine as a way of sort of boosting immunity, this sort of paraimmunity thing, which was a terrible idea. And um, 
It's pretty frightening. Really interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's not disseminated smallpox. Like you said, it's the, the vaccinia is the virus that you're using uh, in the same, in a similar family. So, okay, fascinating. Thank you, Paul. So one quick question that I wanna ask, you know, we've been through this ride together, it continues. Uh, what are some things that you think you may have gotten over the path? Because part of science is figuring out when you're wrong and, and correcting or, or incorporating that knowledge and getting better instead of entrenching, defending, and rationalizing, which seems to be what the public discourse is often. Um, what are some things that you might have gotten wrong uh, during this whole course that you've changed your mind about or things that you've changed your mind about? And what are some things that you think you kind of nailed right and are still uh, you're still really advocating we do? Well, I certainly was wrong about how devastating this virus would be. I mean, when you know, when it firstly raised its head in China and then seemed to settle down initially, um, there were like 3,000 deaths in a population five times greater than ours. Then it goes to Italy, which has a um, arguably, especially in northern Italy, a um, healthcare system that's not necessarily as good as ours or as good as we'd like ours to be. Um, you know, the and, and I sort of just figured, okay, here's, you know, uh, Italy is smaller than us, China is bigger than us here. If you look, I, I think we're going to have, you know, fewer than 60,000 deaths here and said that actually on CNN International in the early March of 2020. So I was only off by like a million plus deaths. So I was yeah. definitely wrong about how bad this was going to be. I, I'm curious to see whether I'm, uh, how it works out with uh, uh, two doses. Initially, I felt like two doses. Well, let me take a step back. When in December 2020, we recommended that Moderna and Pfizer's vaccine be launched as a two-dose vaccine, some very smart people, vaccinologists, you know, called me and said, this is a three-dose vaccine. It is. Because if you look at polio, an inactivated polio vaccine, or you look at an inactivated hepatitis A vaccine, or you look at purified protein vaccines, the only way you can get adequate frequencies, high frequencies of memory B cells or memory T cells, is to have a four to six month window between doses. So you're going to have to have that third dose later at some point to get those levels up. You know, and so... I believe that, but was sort of waiting to see it and didn't see it at the end of the first year. Because remember, this, these mRNA vaccines were something with which we had no experience. So, you know, be open-minded, wait to see what you see. I'm curious to see whether over time, if you've just gotten two doses and you were otherwise healthy young person, whether you really are at risk of, of serious illness. It's certainly true with that, with that third dose. You get a boost in some, you get some more affinity maturation, you get a broader immune response against BA4, BA5, that's all true. But does that also mean that you're, you're not as well protected against serious illness? Um, we'll see what happens. I, I just really hope that the immunologists and, and epidemiologists get together to, to answer those questions. Who really needs these booster doses? Because like anything in medicine, whether it's a biological or a drug, it, it, it's it's if you have clear evidence of benefit, then you're willing to take the risk. But if there's not clear evidence of benefit, then don't ask people to take take any sort of risk, even if it's smaller, theoretical. So so just make the case, make the case for it is all I'm saying. Yeah. So quick lightning question kind of related to that that I meant to ask earlier. Would you mandate a BA4-5 booster for healthcare professionals? No, I mean, I, I can tell you we, we're not mandating it at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. Yeah, got it. Uh, for all the reasons we talked about. And um, how about the last thing I'll ask is for young children, let's say uh, two to, you know, to, to 11, that sort of range, um, we have pretty abysmal uptake of vaccine. Do you think more people should be vaccinating kids in that age? Or do you think we've reached enough um, general seroprevalence now that it's not necessary. What are your thinking on, on the young kids that say, say without comorbidities? 
Right. I actually, and I get a lot of hate mail for this. I, I, I you know, if you look at children who are hospitalized or go to the ICU, um, uh, it, it, you know, with COVID, only about a third have have uh, underlying comorbidity. So, so, and I, you know, work in a hospital where I see this. So, I, I would really encourage people to vaccinate their, their young children. I think you're right. And I've heard uh, Dr. Prasad say this on your show that, you know, that there definitely is more, um, more um, population immunity. I think that that protects us all. But but if you look at what's happening now, um, if you answer the answer to the question, what group is the least vaccinated? It's people less than 18 years of age. They're going back to school now and you're starting to see an increase in hospitalization. Dave Rubin at our child policy lab is as now put out these data showing you are starting to see more hospitalizations in in, in children it, because we have this network of children's hospitals we follow for, you know, not for serious, but, you know, for bronchiolitis, for croup, you know, for fever in a young child. So if you can, if you can avoid that safely, which I think vaccines do, then I would say get a vaccine. Then the question becomes, well, how long does it last? I mean, if you get that vaccine, are you going to be obligated for, you know, for boosters sooner and for longer? I mean, because you're younger, are you not responding as well? Time will tell. But I, I do think that if that I would, I certainly encourage vaccines, even in young children, but because the, the I think the less than five-year-old, I think it's fewer than 5% of that group is getting vaccinated. Yeah, it's very, very small. Um, I just always love hearing your perspective. I know my audience does. I learned so much during this talk. I, you, if you, if uh, maybe when I edit it, I'll cut away to my face during some of your uh, conversation because I'm just like, uh, it's really the insights on BA four five on the boosters on influenza on polio on monkeypox on all of that. Really, really tremendous, Paul. Anything else you wanted to tell the audience uh, that you can't say on CNN? Uh, drop any <laughs> f bombs. Anything you want. The platform's yours. Just, just spill it. No, I, th I think um, I think we're getting there. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens this winter. I, I mean, the the you know you hear some pundits saying you know this is going to be awful. You know, there's going to you know BA four BA five is going to sweep across. You know, because we're now going to be indoors again, and it's going to be just like it's been the last two winters. That would really surprise me. And we have such a high level of population immunity. We have you know monoclonal antibodies. We have Paxlovid. You know, we have antiviral agents. I would really be surprised if you saw what we saw the last two winters, where you'd see 3,000 deaths a day, 4,000 deaths a day. I can't imagine that would happen. Um, so, because I think we are getting there. And, and, you know, people, it's different from where we were early because we, if you define pandemic as it changes the way you live, work, or play, you would argue in most areas of this country, we're past the pandemic. I mean, most people are just doing what they normally do now. And we'll see whether by doing that, knowing that the virus is still circulating, knowing that there's still population in this country that's not vaccinated or under vaccinated, we'll see what happens. But I would think that if you look at the last two winters and then this winter's winter, you would not see that same level of bump. But we're going to learn a lot this winter. Yeah, that's awesome. Paul, thanks a million. Um, guys who are watching the show, uh, this, this is Paul, this is where I have to do the YouTube thing in order to stay afloat. I have to say, guys, smash that subscribe button. If you like what Paul said, hit share, hit like, and leave a comment. Tell us what you think. Uh, what style should we be canceled in for saying pregnant women instead of pregnant people? Hit that like button. And if you want to support the show, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters or paypal.me forward slash zdogmd. And I respond to all those. And I will send Paul a tip for every donation I get, the next time when I go to visit him to go to the FDA um, meeting on uh, influenza stuff, which he invited me to, and I'm gonna hold him to it, uh, you guys will help fund that trip. So Paul, thanks a million guys and gals and non-binary pals, we are out. Peace.
Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, It just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.